0: You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks again, everyone, for your warm welcome to me. It's good to be together at the start of this new week and hear about God. What's God like? We hear about him every week. What do we hear? What sort of God is he? And then, how do we know any of that's true? Well, today, what we're going to do is we're going to see what David sees. We're actually going to look through David's eyes, and his experience of God will be our experience of God for the next 25 minutes. I'm going to walk in David's shoes for 25 minutes. David was... um, he was creative. He was powerful. But David was also, he was flawed. And he was weak and fallible. David was um, manipulating. But David himself was also often manipulated by others, even though he was the king. you know He was just as caught up in things as anybody else. He was wise and merciful. But David could be vengeful. It seemed that no one understood God quite like David and yet David himself could be closed off and hard-hearted to the Lord. He was a king and a warrior. He was a musician, a poet and a composer. He was an organiser and a builder. He started off as the least of the least, wasn't even invited to the meeting, the least of the least, and he grew to be the greatest of the great. But what, what really makes David relevant for us is not when we look through just through his eyes. What really makes David relevant for us today is when we look through another pair of eyes. Another person, David's own son, will come and he will see everything that David sees, in fact, more so. He will experience God just like David experienced God, in fact, even more so. And and that person, David's son, that second set of eyes, he will open up the way for you and me to see God like that. He will open up the way for you and me to experience God like that too. What's God like? We hear about him every week. What do we hear? what sort of God is he and how do we know any of it's true well first of all God's a shepherd that's what David says the Lord is my shepherd have a look at verse 1 Psalm 23 verse 1 a psalm of David the Lord is my shepherd I lack nothing he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters he refreshes my soul Here we are, Psalm 23, we're 23 psalms in, and so far God has been called in these psalms. He's been called a fortress, a shield, a wall, a high tower, a refuge in times of trouble. God has been called a rock, a king, a judge, a deliverer who can rescue. We're only 23 psalms in, and we've already heard God is all of those things. But here in this psalm, many of those good things about God, rock, a wall, a high tower, a shield, a defender, they're all kind of brought together into the one image here in this psalm, they're all kind of rolled into one because David says, God is my shepherd. And that image, shepherd, that actually summarises many of these other things that we've already been learning about God um, in the psalms. Um, To be a shepherd in these ancient and biblical times apparently required a lot from you. It was very hard work and pretty tough. It was a a little bit dangerous and lonely. It's one of those jobs that you really had to give up everything for and, you know, it cost you a lot to do it, but you didn't really get much back from it because it it wasn't a great career and you didn't get paid a lot. As a result, there's a real difference between a good shepherd and a hired hand. The good shepherd would know his sheep and the sheep would know him. The good shepherd would understand his sheep and the sheep would would know his voice. The good shepherd would even, if he needed to, lay down his life for the sheep. Now, the hired hand, like, the hired hand didn't know any of that. First sign of trouble and the hired hand would would scoot. They They were out of there. There's a real difference between a good shepherd and the hired hand. The hired hand, he won't know, he won't care, you know, he's off. Because of the way that God provides for David, David sees God, the Lord of the Bible, as the good shepherd. Because of how God provides. But like, how does God provide? Like, how does he care for David? Well, that's verse 2. Look closely, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet, quiet waters. This is like your birthday and Christmas and your team winning the grand final all on the same day. Like, so if you were a sheep, this was like everything you could ever want because there's so much food, you can just lay down in it. It's like laying down in a big bar- bed of popcorn, you know, just lay down and just shovel it into your mouth or something glorious like that. You know, the grass is, the grass, It normally, um, you know, animals had to scrounge whatever they could for a dirty bit of grass and then move on to the next paddock. But here, the grass is green and lush, just lay down in it. And um, same with the water. In these dry, undeveloped lands, you don't normally get this. It's unheard of. Because, because it's not a muddy slurp that the Lord offers to David. You don't have to sort of suck, up, you know, suck up the water through the dirt or something like that. No, just as the grass is green, so the water is deep. Oh, what a beautiful image. Uh, like I said, it's really good to be with you today and thanks for your warm welcome. And, and I want to stress that these images here that we're looking at, these, these first couple of verses, they're not about how nice God is. It's saying it's more than that. It, it's, not, it's not even about how um, peaceful David feels because often we think of these words as peaceful words. But actually what these first couple of verses are saying, what these words are saying is how well God provides for David. So much so that David can say, I don't need anything else. If I have the Lord, I lack nothing. What a thing to say. Imagine being able to say that yourself, with everything that goes on in life, and all the busyness, and all the things that we want, and all the things that we wish we had, to be able to say, no, I have the Lord, and so I lack nothing. Man, that's so cool. Um, And this makes sense that David would say, I lack nothing. This makes sense that God would provide so well for David, because... Because of what David says, the, the Lord is my shepherd. Think about that. So he's not saying other people are my shepherd who will provide for me. He's, not, he, he's certainly not saying other gods are my shepherd. He's saying the Lord is the one who provides, the Lord is the one who gives. This makes heaps of sense. Look at the very next psalm. We didn't read it, but look at Psalm 24. It's from David as well. And look at verse 1, and you'll totally get what I mean. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God owns it. He made it. It's owned by him and known by him. It's all under his care. It's all in his hands. It's it's God's to give and to take. It's God's to withhold and to share. And so when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack no good thing, it helps us to understand. Everything is God's. It's all his, and he's giving it. He's providing for David. Because of the way that God provides, David sees God, the Lord of the Bible, as the very good shepherd. And it's worth just sticking one other thing in here. he says, the Lord is the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. So he's, he's talking about to me. I, me, my. This is not one of those psalms that you get where the whole flock will come together and sing up to God or where a whole group will come together and, and say things about God. But this is, actually, this is actually a personal psalm of David. I, me, my. And, and, and so we're really... Seeing God through David's eyes right now, aren't we? We're really getting to experience God as David gets to experience God. I, me, my. Such a personal relationship, such an amazing relationship that he has with the God who owns the whole earth. But what, what does he mean when he says it? You know, what, what is the whole grass? Thing about and the water like david's obviously not a sheep so he's not actually going to be eating grass so god's not actually providing for him with like literal grass so how how does god how does god actually um provide for him well that's the next verse the lord is my shepherd i lack nothing he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters he refreshes my soul that's how God is able to provide for David. God, God can actually give into David's life and soul in a complete and full and generous way and so rather than God like subtracting from David and taking from David and demanding from David and depleting David it's the opposite. Rather than draining away from David's life because of, you know, the, the, the time that David's got to give and the toll it takes and the energy he's got to put in, rather than draining David, God deposits into David. He's even able to restore David when David gets down, you know, 0%. And the battery is, you know, all the way down. And the Lord is actually able to lift David up and renew him and refresh him in body and soul. And, and this, is, this is how God provides for him. Isaiah says, even young people grow tired and weary. That's you guys. And young men stumble and fall. Could you remember. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Yes, Lord. <laughs> Let's think about something like money, um, the old Australian dollar, cash. Uh, I mean, we don't use cash much anymore, but pl- plastic cards, what, what is it? Well, it, it's just a, um, it's a plastic thing that we invest power in. And so we say, well, if you've got a lot of this plastic, you're, you're, we, we rate you highly, but if you don't have much of this plastic, you're poor and we don't esteem you much at all. But, but, but th- it's just plastic, it doesn't have any power in and of itself, right? We give it the power. We put the power in and then we spend all our days running after this plastic stuff and trying to get as much of it as we can and trying to keep as much of it as we can for ourselves and and all of those sorts of things. But the the power, it doesn't have power in itself, it has to come from us. We give the plastic money the power. But God is not like that. God's so different. He's the living God and he deposits into David's life. He gives David all he needs, his life, his breath, his health, his spiritual well-being. He restores my life and my soul. But it's not just what God gives to David that makes God such a good shepherd. It's not just God's provision that makes God such a good shepherd. It's also how he leads David, how he leads David along. And that also makes God into a good shepherd. Have a look at verse 3, which says, "Um, He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Literally, it says, faithful paths. He guides me along faithful paths. And it means something like, David can trust the road. Whether it's rough or smooth, whether it's overgrown or whether it's been cleared away, David can trust the road. He can be confident that the shepherd hasn't lost his way. And that maybe the shepherd's leading him up the garden path. David can be confident that he's on the right road because the shepherd is a faithful shepherd. He's a trustworthy shepherd. And he's the one leading David through all things, all things working together as he leads David along. Even the valley is part of his faithful paths. Even when the shepherd leads David down into the deep valley, even that is part of the faithful paths. Because even in that deep valley, God is there with him. In fact, in that deep valley, David feels the shepherd more than ever. In that deep valley, he really feels the presence of the shepherd watching over him at that time. It's dark. And it's rough, but he says, ah, oh, this is the way that the shepherd has chosen to take me. And so he, he's able to lead him through these faithful paths and he says, for his name's sake, so that the shepherd's faithfulness will be known to David. That as David comes through this dark valley, he'll say, ah, oh, this is the faithful path and the shepherd is faithful himself. And so the Lord leads him that way for his name's sake, for the Lord's name's sake. And then just one final thing. Did you notice how David changes from talking? Do you notice this? He changes from talking about God, but when he's in a valley, he starts talking to God. See that there? You are right there with me. You are a comfort to me. At this time, that's where David's relationship with the good shepherd really comes into its own. It's not just some head knowledge about God. It's actually from David's heart. And he's really, talking, he's really talking to God, to God now. Um, uh, um, do's and Don'ts When Dealing with the Downcast. It's a, it's a title of an article um, that, that I read in preparation for this. Dos, do's and Don'ts When Dealing with the Downcast. It's by um, a Queensland Presbyterian lecturer. And um, I thought I'd share with you some of the article, because it really rams home the point we're trying to make here about the shepherd's provision and the way that we can trust the shepherd. And um, the article that I read, Do's and Don'ts When Dealing with the Downcast, it says, I've been talking with a long-term friend of mine in recent weeks. He's a believer who's had a harder than average road to walk. And that combined with some bad Christian teaching has created a perfect storm of mental ill health. The thing that surprised me when talking with him recently is that as he begins his process of recovering, from an anxiety breakdown, he has to avoid his Christian friends and family. The reason? They care. And in their care, they inevitably call on him to trust God, look to God, place himself in God's hands, or the like. They can't avoid exhorting him to stir up his faith. The problem with that is that his world is little more than darkness without the possibility of improvement. He's overwhelmed with burdens that seem silly to anyone not him. He's barely standing up under the weight of just being himself. When you add an exhortation to do something to that load, especially an exhortation like trust God, and you've given him one more thing to do and a critical thing at that. And so he can whip himself as he judges himself for not being trusting. And then this article goes on to say, when someone is really downcast, exhortations can be a waste of time. Because there's nothing in the tank. There's no willpower to exert. All the person has is currently being used just to keep breathing. Your exhortation could add to the litany of failures that is usually part of the self-talk of someone who's overcome by anxiety or depression. Here we go. Rather than calling on them to trust God, just give them a reason to trust God. Just talk about how great and good God is. How his mercies are ever renewed. How we don't have to muster up faith to get access to his grace. How he holds us up even as we trip and fall. How the father who gave his eternally loved son for us when we were against him is also a father who is really there for us now that we're his children. Just talk about God to them as if that were life itself. And don't finish by saying, so trust him, okay? Finish by saying, he's on your side. He's going to carry you through however bad it gets. Sometimes it's okay just to declare the promises of God and not ask for any response in the short term. Wow. It really struck me. I hadn't really thought of that. God is good. He provides all we need and more. He leads David according to his faithfulness. There is God. There he is. So this week I've been praying for you at the branch. I know some of you, but I don't don't know many of you. But I've been praying, may you know him more. May you know him better. May you um, be drawn to follow the good shepherd. But it's not just um, his provision that this psalm talks about. Not just God's provision in how he he gives to David, how he leads David. There's, There's actually more here. And that brings us up to point two, the final point you'll be pleased to hear. Point one, God is my shepherd. We're looking through David's eyes. And what does David see? God is like a shepherd. But then point two, God is my king. We're looking through David's eyes and we see that God is the king. Look at verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Not just a good shepherd, the second part of the psalm talks about how God is a generous host. And actually, not just a generous host, the second part of the psalm talks about how God is a, a good king. Or maybe you'd even say a loving father. I um, In this verse, God gives David honour in the presence of those who accuse him. And then he gives David a seat at the table. And then he gives David his own set of car- keys keys to the house so David can just come back to the house whenever he wants. He, he adopts David so that David can be with God forever in his kingdom. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, God's not just a good shepherd in this psalm. That's the one that we all know. But this psalm actually moves on to talk about how God is a generous host. And maybe not just a generous host, maybe something even more. Maybe a loving father or, or, or a great king. And, and that's why um, you might notice in your, um, in your Bible there's a gap between verse 4 and 5. Because the psalm moves on. If we're going to understand God, if we're going to see God as David sees God, if we're going to experience God as David does, then we actually need to move away from the shepherd and the grass and the water, and now we need to move into the, the home, or perhaps even like the palace. And we need to think about God there, if we're going to know him better. Um, to bathe someone's head in, in oil or perfume, as an ancient custom... It seems pretty weird to me, but obviously I don't live in these times. Even in Jesus' day, it was still a thing to bathe someone's head in, in oil or perfume. Uh, look at Luke 7:46, and you'll see that it was still a thing in Jesus' day. Um, a cup that overflows means very generous. You know, you go to the cafe, and they give you a milkshake, and, and you think, oh, the tide's a bit low. You know, it's, it's like hoping for a little bit more but this is the opposite right? it's flowing over and it's flowing onto the table and there's bubbles and there's pink milk and everything's and you just think oh this is delicious and there's a cream and a strawberry on top So it's very generous a, 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 gen- a generous host god is not just a good shepherd to david but david's experience of him is, is that god is a generous host but not just a generous host because he, he doesn't just prepare a table does he a generous host would prepare a table for you. You know, come, sit down, be with me. But look, look, look at the words. Not just a, g- a generous host, but he does it in the presence of David's enemies, before their eyes. And in doing so, he's actually adding to the defeat of David's rivals. There are these people and they are out to get David. But God actually takes David's side. Um, He honours David in the presence of David's enemies. He he, he lifts David up in, in in the presence of the enemies. One commentary I read in preparation said, Defeated rivals are now made reluctant guests. Isn't that cool? Defeated rivals are now made reluctant guests because of God. And that's how David experiences God. So not just a good shepherd, but a generous host. And not just a generous host, but a... A loving father, perhaps. Verse 6, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Do you know what it literally says? Surely your goodness and love will pursue me. I love this. Because God's going ahead of him and leading him as a good shepherd. So God's out in front. But in verse 6, God's behind him. And God's pursuing him with love and, and generosity and faithfulness. So, like, whichever way he turns, God is there with him, blessing him and giving to him. Um, It's so good. And then finally, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What would that be like? What a hope. What a promise. It's something eternal. It's something established. It's something secure. How wonderful to read that, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When I was growing up, my dad used to read me um, John Bunyan's book called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a story of a man called Christian. And it's his desperate escape from the city of destruction. And it's his terrifying journey, scary journey, to the heavenly city, to the city of the king. He's got to go from the city of destruction to the city of the king. And it's supposed to be an allegory of the Christian life. Allegory means like an imagination of the Christian life. And along the way, all these terrible things happen to to Christian as he tries to get to the heavenly city. Like he falls into the slough of despond. And that's like how we get depressed as believers sometimes. The slough of despond. Um, He has to go up the hill of difficulty. And that's like how we all have a season where life's pretty hard. Um, I, I relate to the hill of difficulty. He gets caught in Vanity Fair with all these temptations and worldly pleasures. And he actually gets stuck there. He has to go through Doubting Castle, which is occupied by this terrifying giant called despair. And he meets wonderful people who help him, men and women called faithful and hopeful and truthful. And he also meets these dodgy people who try and discourage him and distract him from going to the heavenly city. And they're they're men called ignorance and pliable and Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And after a long journey, he finally comes to the last hurdle before he can go into the heavenly city. And it's the river of death. And that's like how all of us must die in this life, fall asleep before we come into God's heavenly kingdom. And it's pretty scary. And just as he goes through the river of death, he turns around and he sees all the trials and difficulties that he's gone through over his whole journey. And way, way back in the distance, he sees one of the worst Difficulties that he faced, and it was called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And as he looks back, it doesn't seem that bad now. But man, at the time, it was horrible. He was just about to walk into the Valley of the Shadow of Death, and these two crazy men they ran out at him and and they tried to persuade him that don't go in there, don't go in there. And that's like the spies who warned Israel that the land ahead was good but the way to get there was too dangerous. But in his determination, Christian went ahead into the valley of the shadow of death and in there he hears screams and groans and voices saying all these blasphemous things. And at one point he thinks he's even the one saying these blasphemous things. And he's just about to give up. But listen, listen to what it says in Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian had travelled in this condition for some considerable time, he thought he heard the voice of a man as going before him, saying, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And this voice encourages Christian to keep going because he realises there's someone else in the valley who's going through it too. But that person is going ahead faithfully. And that refreshes him. And he he tries to catch up to the person, but he can never catch the person, no matter how hard he tries. And in the end, he comes out of the valley, and the sun comes out, and for a moment he realises he's in a good land. And he turns around and he looks at the valley of the shadow of death, and he's like, whoa, that was worse than I thought. The path was really narrow, and on one side there was this horrible pit with all these spears sticking up, and on the other side, there was this awful trench full of flames. Wow, that place was worse than I even realised. But the voice stays in his head that there was someone who was also going through the valley, but was going through faithfully. And so then, right at the very end of his journey, as he faces death and he prepares to enter the heavenly kingdom, he's able to look back and see the valley of the shadow of death so far behind him now, but it's nothing. Nothing because he's about to come into the presence of the eternal king and live there forever, an everlasting city. And nothing can compare to that. In fact, all those difficulties, they're actually all being used by the great king for Christian's good, and they make his entry into the heavenly city even more special. That's encouraging to hear, isn't it? That's an uplifting story to have. We've been looking at this psalm through David's eyes, and it's been beautiful. To experience what David did and it's been wonderful to to learn what David learned about God but as I said in the introduction, David's eyes aren't the only eyes that saw this there's another set of eyes that experienced these things even more so, even more than David and actually learned these truths even more than David Jesus faced the darkest valley, a valley of death and yet he completely trusted God, that that was God's faithful path for his name's sake. And God brought Jesus through the deepest valley and lifted him above those who accuse him. And God vindicated him in the presence of his enemies. And God has established him forever See, if it is beautiful to read this psalm through the eyes of David and, and how, what encouragement we get from that, then how much more wonderful is it to read this psalm through Jesus' eyes and seeing it all happen to him. When you're in the deepest valley, there is one who has gone before and he was faithful in that valley and he went ahead for you and for God's name's sake. When you are in the deepest valley, there is one who says, I know. I went through. I went through before you and I went through for you. And we'll never be able to catch up to him because he's gone ahead. And yet he's with us. Romans 8.1 says, in Christ there is now no condemnation because through Christ... The spirit of life set me free from sin and death. Romans 8.16, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Welcome at the table. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Even the valley is part of his faithful paths. Romans 8.31 says, what shall we say in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, the present, the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Because God has sent his son. And because Jesus has gone ahead and experienced these things, enemies can't accuse us, nothing can separate us, no one can defeat us because of Jesus Christ. Along with David, we can truly say, God looks after me. Lord, we just want to thank you so much for Jesus and how he came and he was faithful and he trusted that your path was the faithful path. We thank you so much, Lord, that you raised him up. In the presence of his enemies, you exalted him. And he dwells forever in your everlasting kingdom. And through him, that experience can be ours, that knowledge can be ours. We can know you, Lord, as our shepherd and our provider and our generous king. May we uh, learn to trust you more. May we learn to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.